All right, 1 Samuel 17, 1 Samuel 17. Well, when we finished verse 10 of chapter 17, we left Paul, Saul, in a precarious situation. Uh, He has no intention of letting single combat determine who rules over who, uh, but he also can't ignore Goliath's challenge, so he's kind of in a pickle. And, And thus, like the rest of his soldiers, his heart is troubled. And so, you know, we, we see this man who's, who's troubled because he just won't follow the Lord. He won't trust the Lord. doesn't mean that we who are following the Lord don't experience troubling circumstances. We certainly do. But our hearts don't need to be troubled when we're going through them. Well, into this situation steps a young man whom the Lord is with, and therefore a man who has nothing to fear. And so with a simple mindset and a courageous heart, David puts himself forward as the man who will represent Israel against the giant. So chapter 17 will begin in verse 12. It says, well, in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine of Goliath, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. But then verse 12 says, now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next unto him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So here we are are reintroduced to David and his family because uh, things are shifting back and forth between Saul and David. We we saw that Samuel anoints David. uh, They go out to find someone to replace the joy of his salvation with some good music. They find David, a man who the Lord is with, and it helps Saul out. Uh, But then Saul's got this other trial that comes up. Well, now the focus is returning to David, and it reminds us who he is. Uh, David's family, he is from the city of Bethlehem. The Ephrathite, it just identifies an older name for Bethlehem uh, of Judah. And we know that David is the youngest of eight boys. Uh, We met Jesse and his sons in chapter 16 when Samuel anointed David to be Saul's replacement for king. Uh, But here we learn why Jesse's not on the battlefield and why his three older sons are, because he is an old man. He went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. He was beyond the age of fighting, and so his older boys are out there fighting uh, for Saul instead. Uh, And so we get here to verse 14, and it focuses on on David. David was the youngest, and it mentions here uh, that while the three eldest followed Saul, David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. David was fine as Saul's administrative assistant at court. Remember after David had been serving him as a, a musician for a while that it, Saul fell in love with him. He just really liked the guy, trusted him, and he became his, his armor bearer, his administrative assistant. Uh, And Saul, David was fine for that role at court, uh, but David was not trained as a soldier, and Saul likely considered this a liability on a battlefield. And so he sends David home, and David goes right back to taking care of the sheep. You know, it's interesting, we never see David pout about this or resent Saul for this. Uh, David is okay with whatever role God seems to put him in, and that is a good mindset to have. 
You know, because there are times when the Lord exalts you, right? And you're flying high, and then there are times when the Lord abases you, and you're like, God, what are you doing? You know, it's good to have a mindset where you're just okay with whatever role God has you in, knowing that He'll take care of you wherever He puts you. Well, as this goes on for a while, um, Jesse sends David eventually to the battlefield to check on the brothers. It says in verse 16, the Philistine drew near morning and evening. It presented himself for 40 days, which means Jesse has very little news on what's going on with his sons. And so Jesse says unto David, verse 17, his son, take now for your brothers an ephah of this parched corn and these 10 loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. And carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand, and look how your brethren fare, and take their pledge. So the idea here is, I want you to find out how they're doing. The word there, fare, actually means shalom. See if they're, if they're doing well. See if, that's, if that can describe how they are. Are they experiencing shalom, peace, good welfare? Is, are their lives okay? Is things good, or is it bad? And so take their pledge, which would be a verbal message, which cons- uh, confirms that things are favorable there. And so, verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. But there's not actually any fighting going on. Uh, They're just kind of staring at each other and yelling at each other until Goliath comes out. Verse 20, and so David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper, and he took and went as Jesse, his dad, had commanded him. And he came to the trench. The word here describes a circular military camp. Uh, they do it that way for defense. It's kind of like, you know, a ring of wagons that they'd set up if you were traveling. Uh, it's a defensible position. And so uh, David uh, comes into this, the military camp, just as the army was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. So just as the army is going out uh, and setting up their battle lines there, um, Dave, that's when David arrives. And so he's getting there right as this stuff is about to get started for the day. Now, what it seems like is that Saul's plan, King Saul, was to ignore Goliath's challenge and just line up his men to fight every day in hopes that the Philistines would get bored, Goliath would get bored, and they'd just fight it out. But even though the Philistines lined up opposite them every day, they never engaged. They were content to let Goliath reiterate his challenge every single day. And this went on day after day after day until David happens to arrive right when it's all getting started. And so, verse 22 tells us, and David, uh, well, verse 21, for Israel and the Philistines put the battle in array. That's where they lined up army against army. Verse 22, and David left his carriage, all his supplies that his dad had sent. He left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage. So he takes all the stuff and he leaves it with the soldier who is in charge of provisions for that part of the army. Hey, this is for the captain. It's a present from my dad. I'm here to check up on my brother's. And so he says he ran into the army. So the word their army actually means the battle lines. David goes right out onto the battlefield, leaves the protected military camp, goes out onto the battlefield right on the, where the army is, the Israeli army's lined up, and he came and saluted. He began to ask and inquire about his brothers. So these guys are all lined up and they're all shouting at each other, Philistines stink, you know, Israelites rule, you know. They're shouting at each other and and David's out there going, hey, have you seen Eliab? Anybody know Eliab? He's asking for his brothers because he can't go home until he actually hears it from their lips. And so it mentions here that while this happens, verse 23, as he talked with them, as he's asking about his brothers, Behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, 
Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, everything that he had said before. Hey, why are we coming out here to fight? I'm a champion. I'm, I'm a man. Why don't you bring out your champion? I'll fight him. If you beat me, you kill me, then we'll be your servants. If I kill him, we'll, you'll be our servants. Sound, save all this bloodshed. And, and so he comes out and he does it again. And it says, the Bible makes a point of saying, and David heard He heard all of it. And David's reaction will be very different from the rest of Israel's soldiers' reaction, showing that David has a different heart. Look at verse 24. When Goliath comes out and says his spiel, it says, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. Uh, The word there, fled, doesn't mean they just ran. It means they departed to a safe place. So they came back to their protected camp. No, we're not doing this mess. If you're not going to fight us, we're not going to fight. And they go back to their camp because they were very afraid. They didn't want, none of them wanted to face Goliath. Verse 25, And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this guy? Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to divide Israel as ye come up. So, again, we already learned earlier that Samuel had to learn the lesson that God doesn't look at the outward appearance, that God looks on the heart. And so they are, have not learned that yet. They're looking at this guy's outward appearance, and they're thinking, nobody can take this guy one-on-one. And they say, man, he's just out here to ridicule us again. He's out here, the word defy means to ridicule, to taunt. You know, that's all he's here for. You know, it's interesting. The Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so what is Goliath at heart? Goliath is just an arrogant, cruel man. You know, he's, he's just another petty bully. And thus, he's not in God's favor. But instead of looking at all that, all that the soldiers saw was a giant with no equal on earth. And let me tell you something. If you look at your problems that way, they will terrify you. If you just square up with the outward appearance of of your problems, they will be absolutely terrifying. Because on your own, on my own, I am not the equal to many of the challenges I'll encounter. I am not. And many of the things that may come into my life, if I try to square up on them and say, okay, let's take the measure of my problem in me, I am not up for most of those challenges. You know, a fearful heart isn't necessarily a heart that doesn't understand the facts. It's a heart that just ignores the most important facts. Now, on the other hand, a courageous heart looks at all the facts and recognizes that God is not just equal to whatever challenge we're facing, but He is greater than every challenge that we face. Amen? Now, as these guys are explaining all this, man, nobody can take this guy. He's up to here to ridicule and taunt us. But then they say this, and this is the other side. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. These are the other facts. The idea is, yeah, I know he's tough, but man, have you heard what the king's offering to anybody that can kill this guy? The idea is these things that Saul has laid out there should have stirred up the soldier's courage. You're going to be exempt. Your whole family is going to be, not just you, but your whole family is going to be exempt from taxes forever. And yet no one rises to the challenge. 
No one except a shepherd from Bethlehem who overhears their conversations. Verse 26. And David spoke to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that kills the Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? What did you guys say? It's like he hears it, but he's not sure. He's like, did I hear that correctly? Because it doesn't sound like anybody's acting on that. For he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You know, it's interesting. He says here that what shall be done to this guy, that kill, the guy that kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? The word reproach means a disgrace, a state of dishonor. For at least 40 days, Saul has not answered this challenge. He has not stepped up to the plate. And again, we, don't, we have ideas of honor in our country, but it, nothing like they have over there. And for him to do nothing, it not only brings dishonor upon him, it brings dishonor upon the entire nation. And so David's looking at this going, nobody's done anything, and this is what the king's offering? And I love what he says. Because he doesn't understand, why is no one stepping up to this? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy, ridicule, taunt the armies of the living God? You know, it's interesting because it's not like David was blind. You know, it's not like David looked over there and he's like, who's that peewee? You know? No, I mean, David sees he's big. He sees he's tough. He knows that probably nobody could match this guy in one-on-one combat on their own. But his estimation of Goliath was different because he saw every Israeli soldier as a member of the living God's army. He's like, this guy's got nothing on us. And so when no one is stepping up, despite what Saul is offering, David's incredulous. He's like, are you serious? Any of us could take this guy, even me. Tell me what the reward is again. (laughs) And verse 27, and the people answered him after this manner, saying, shall it be done to the man that kills him? But you know, a non-soldier making a fuss on the front lines isn't going to go unnoticed. I mean, David's not wearing armor. He doesn't fit in at all. And so David's brothers don't just hear about David being there, but they hear about him asking these questions, and they're like, oh, great, little brother's here, and he's creating a ruckus. And so verse 28, and Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke unto the men. So he, you know, he arrives onto the scene. He hears that David's asking for him. Here's David's making a scene, and, and he arrives here as David's asking, is this for real? No, none of y'all going to fight him? And Eliab's anger was kindled. The word there means his nose became red hot. He, his nostrils started flaring. He was livid. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the naughtiness of your heart, for you are come down that you might see the battle. The word there, naughtiness, means the evil, the moral badness of your heart. I know your pride. The word there means to have an inflated view of yourself. What, what are you doing down here? And, and you got to love this. Have you ever had a brother, like, or if you've been the older brother like me, you said stuff like this? You know? You know, there you see your little brother doing something. You're like, what are you doing, man? And you ask a question. You don't even give him time to answer. You just tell him you already know the answer, right? You know, what are you doing down here? You know, what, what, what's going on with this sheep? Ah, I don't want to hear your stupid answer. You know, I know why you're here. because of the inflated view you have of yourself, just because you've killed a lion and a bear, you think you're hot stuff. I know the moral badness of your heart. You're just here to see the battle. 
It's not a game, David. You don't understand. You know, Eliab assumes he knows what's in David's heart and he answers his own question, doesn't even give his brother a chance to answer. And while people do speak out of the abundance of their heart, the problem is, as we're listening, our hearts are deceitful and wicked too, which means our understanding of what we hear can be woefully incorrect. Therefore, assuming what motivates someone and condemning them based on my assumption of such is sin. It's always wrong. The Bible says that God is the only one who knows what's going on in here. I don't even know my own heart. You know, that's why it's oh, this. The, follow your heart is dumb. It's just not a good way to do life. And you hear people say it all the time. Just follow your heart, man. No, don't, please. Please, that's the way that leads to bad stuff. Because you don't even know your heart. You say, oh, I, I, I've searched. I know my heart. No, that's why David said, Lord, you search my heart and see if there's any way wicked in me. I've looked. I haven't found any, but I need you to search, search it because I'm going to miss stuff. The heart's deceitful above all things, the Bible says. Think about the trickiest thing or person you've met. Heart's worst. You know, I think it was someone called the heart the traitor within. So assuming what motivates someone and condemning them based on your assumption is sin. It's wrong. It's an unbiblical way to think and communicate. The Bible says love doesn't even assume the worst. It says love believes the best. You know, one of the biggest problems in marriage or premarital relationships is poor communication. It's probably one of the number one things that people come to me about and say, Pastor Will, we're struggling with our communication, you know, or how can we have better communication? Well, accusations based on assumptions are one of the most common methods of poor communication. If you want to improve your communication in your relationship, whether you're married, not married, eliminate this unbiblical method from your toolbox. <laughs> I can't tell you how many fights would have been avoided if I had just assumed the best about my wife and not the worst. We have a story we tell. There was a time when we were, it's the first year we were married, and, and we were fighting about something. I don't even remember. And Bev's cooking dinner or whatever, and, you know, she gives me my plate, you know, and, and we're in this little one-bedroom apartment, so there's not really anywhere to go. So, I mean, you can't get away from the person you're fighting with. And so I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm waiting for her to come sit with me. And we're going to eat dinner together. We're all mad at each other and whatever. And all of a sudden, these two pieces of toast come flying at my head. <laughs> and, I, and I said to her, and I said, and now why are you throwing toast at me? And she just looked at me like I had, I had four heads. Like, why would you say something like that? And I'm looking at the toast on the floor. I'm like, well, obviously, toast doesn't fly on its own. Well, we had a very overacted toaster. Seriously. And, and commonly, it would, the toast would just fly out. And it just so happened, right at that moment, the toast for dinner flew out and hit me in the head. So... I said some very not nice things because I assumed the worst, that my wife was the type of person that would throw toast at me. It's a silly example. But my point is, we imagine much more sinister things from our spouse, you know, from our friends, 
Some of the things I've seen believers say to one another when they don't know the facts, they just assume they know what's going on. That's why the Bible tells us to be slow to speak and slow to wrath and quick to listen because you need to hear the other person out, not assume you know what's really going on. Verse 29, it says here, and David said, what have I now done? I love that because that's the little brother response, right? What I do this time, you know? What is it now, you know? And I love, he says, is there not a cause? Uh, This was not the first time David's motivations, which they couldn't know, had been shamed when his actions, which they could see and know, weren't wrong. He had done nothing wrong, but they assumed a motivation was wrong, and therefore his right was wrong. And so David says, is there not a cause, which means, Hebrew it means, am I not allowed to talk to people? (laughs) Am I not allowed to converse? It's not like David wasn't used to conversing with officers at court. I mean, David had probably knew some of these people. He had just as much right to discuss what was going on as any soldier in Saul's army. Now, having explained his innocence, David continues asking people if what he's heard was true. Is it really true that the king is doing this? Verse 30, and he turned from him, not his brother, but to the guy he was talking to, toward another and spoke after the same manner. Uh, The word man is there is the same word for cause in verse 29. He's just continuing to talk to people. Did Saul really promise a king's ransom and no one's answering the call? Is this really true? And every single person he talks to says, yeah, it's the case, man. And the people answered again after the former former manner, verse 31. And when the words were heard which David spoke, as they, David's talking courageously. He's like, no one wants to fight this guy. I mean, you get no taxes for the rest of your life. I've never met his daughter. Well, he probably had met his daughter, but you know, who knows? You know, Michael, I mean, she doesn't sound like a winner. Every time I see her in scripture, it's not good, you know. However, you know, maybe David's too young to know that yet. Maybe she was nicer when she was younger. But either way, the point is, all David could see is like, this is a no-brainer decision. And yet everyone else is going, David, you're crazy. And so eventually it becomes clear that David's the only person who's not fearful in this situation. And so a group of people notify Saul. And when the words were heard which David spoke, they rehearsed them. They um, reported them to Saul. And so Saul sent for him. That's a bit too polite. The word literally means Saul seized him. Saul, in a sense, politely had him arrested. You see, while Saul doesn't question David's motives, he does think the young man is being foolish and causing trouble. And yet, I love that David is kind of arrested, but he doesn't get the hint. Because look at verse 32. So he gets to Saul's tent or wherever Saul is, and and David says to Saul, let not man, no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. I got this. The whole reason Saul brought him here is to shut him up. David, David, enough. <laughs> you know, you're a kid. You don't understand what's going on here, all right? We, we, the adults have this in hand, you know? But David says, let no man's heart fail. Literally, no, let no man's courage fail. Because of Goliath, your servant will go and fight this Philistine. You know, David was not so naive as to not understand the danger in front of him. It's simply that he saw a greater danger than Goliath, and it was the failing courage of Israel's army. 
That was the greater danger here. And he says, we don't have to go there, Saul. We don't have to do this day after day. I'll go out and deal with this guy, and then problem solved. You know, the dictionary defines courage as the ability to do something that frightens you. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the ability to act in the face of fear. And whatever courage the Israeli soldiers had on their way to this battle was slowly ebbing away every day Goliath made his challenge and no one answered. You see, to Goliath, uh, to David, Goliath's defeat is always a foregone conclusion. But in his mind, if no one stepped up to do the deed soon, the Philistines would rout an already defeated Israeli army. And to be honest, I don't think David cared who toppled Goliath. I don't think he's clamoring to be that person. I do believe he would have the same confidence whoever Saul sent out there to fight the giant. But in all David's conversations, he didn't find a single person who believed they could do that. And so David volunteers. Now, he loves Saul's response. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go and fight against this Philistine. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. In other words, he says, David, I didn't bring you here to see if you were willing to volunteer. I brought you here to talk some sense into you. And you know, if you take the Lord out of the equation, Saul does make a lot of sense, right? I mean, if you take the Lord out of the equation and you measure things out, Saul makes sense. David is young and untrained in battle. Goliath has been trained from this, for this very moment since he was young. And so when David realizes the king is talking apples and he's talking oranges, he decides to explain his perspective. Look at verse 34. And David said unto Saul, Your servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and I smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose up against me, I caught him by his beard, and I smote him and slew him. Your servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, go, and the Lord be with you. What an interesting conversation here. You know, Saul says, you can't do this. And then afterwards, he's like, no, you got this, man. (laughs) You got this all figured out. What happens here that changes Saul's mind? Well, David gives us perspective, a different perspective, a right perspective. David says to him, listen, I know everything you're saying, Saul. I get that. But let me tell you something you don't know. He says, your servant kept his father's sheep. That's my job. I'm not a soldier. I'm a shepherd. But there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. Now, these are two separate occurrences. It's not like a lion and a bear got together and said, let's gang up on David. All right? That's not what he's saying here. All right? That would never happen. But David talks about them like they're one experience because in his mind, they were the same experience because it went the same way. Lion, bear, Godzilla, it doesn't matter to me. They took my lamb and my job as a shepherd to protect the flock. So I did. So I did. And I love David's storytelling here. He says, he took him, and so I went out after him. I chased him down. He's talking about the lion here, and I smote him. I, <laughs> I chased him down, and I struck him down. He, I, I, probably with his shepherd's staff. I chased him down. He had the lamb in his mouth, and I whacked him upside the head, knocked him out. I took the lamb out of his mouth. 
And when he rose up against me, when he should have stayed down, Simba. When he got up, the light got back up against me. He says, I caught him by the beard, and I smote him, and I slew him. I wrestled his face to the ground. Next time I hit him, I made sure he didn't get up again. Now, lest that sound fable-like, you know, if you read history, history is, is filled with um, experiences where Arab shepherds and stuff had to go out and do stuff like this. So I'm not saying that David's not unique and that he took on a lion, you know, with a staff and whatever else he had. I'm not saying that. However, it's not the, he's not the only person who's ever done this. These were common predators for the um, for shepherds in that region. Um, the bears were, have been hunted down so much they don't exist in that region anymore. Neither do the lions. But these were, were things that were normal dangers for these shepherds. They had to know how to handle them and they had to be prepared to go out and do so because if they didn't, like Jacob talks about, he goes, if, if anything stole something from the flock, you had to pay for it. And so, David explains, I killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine, he'll be just like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. David's heart gushes with courage because of the basis of his confidence. When David calls him an uncircumcised Philistine, it's not an insult. You know, it's almost like he's saying to Saul, you're right. There is no comparison between me and Goliath. He doesn't stand a chance. There is no comparison. David is in covenant with Almighty God, the one who promised he would never leave Israel, he would never forsake Israel, and he would fight all their battles and give them victory over their enemies, right? He's like, he is uncircumcised. He is not in covenant with God. I am. And therefore, he does not stand a chance. Yes, he may be a soldier from his youth, and I may not be a trained soldier, but I'm in covenant with the Lord. And that counts way greater than any of his training. Way greater. He doesn't stand a chance. So the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. David's heart gushes with courage also because of God's past faithfulness. David wasn't a match for a lion or a bear. But as the Lord helped him do his job as a shepherd, the Lord will help him do his job as Saul's servant. Let me do this for you, Saul. God's with me. He'll help me do this. And David's speech is so convincing that Saul gives him the go-ahead. That's only possible if Saul's own heart is stirred to courage. How could you not be stirred to courage by David's words? They're the truth. I can't tell you how many times that you know, I've had a situation come into my life, and, and I'm just overwhelmed, like overwhelmed. And David, it's not that he didn't experience those times too. There are times when David was greatly overwhelmed. But what did the psalmist sing? Oh, my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to a rock, the rock that is higher than I. David's on that rock right now. You know, he's on that rock. He is looking out going, yeah, it's ugly if you're looking at it from down there but I'm, I'm here, and here, it's smooth skies. And so, it's normal to feel overwhelmed at first, but we have to remind ourselves of, of the real facts. 
and that nothing is a match for God. If he is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Well, Saul attempts to equip David for the fight, verse 38, and Saul armed David with his, his armor, which is going to be large. David's not a big guy yet. And he put a helmet of brass upon his head. Also, he armed him with a coat of mail. And not only are these probably oversized for David, but David, he's not a soldier, so he's not used to using these things. So David girded his sword upon his armor, and the, and the Bible says he essayed to go. It means he tried to, but he wasn't able. It mean, essay means to try to do something, but you just can't because you're not fit. It doesn't, it's not a good fit. And so David essayed to go, for he had not proved it. He had never used this stuff before, not armor or weapons like this. And so David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And so David took them off of him. You know, Saul had strengthened himself by doing things like this, doing things his own way for years. It was, it's just become part of his life now. Forget about seeking the Lord or thinking God can do his own thing. And so it makes sense he'd prep David to meet Saul, uh, meet Goliath with the best tools. But David wasn't going to go out there to match Goliath's strength for strength, right? I mean, that's not why he's going out there, so why bring any of that armor? He's going out there with the Lord as his armor. And so in verse 40, we see David go out without any of this stuff. It says he took his staff, the weapon he was used to, a shepherd's staff, probably what he killed the lion and the bear with. It says he came out with his shepherd's staff, and he chose him five smooth stones out of the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a, a scrip. It just means a small container or pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistines. So here comes David out. He's got his shepherd's staff, you know, and the crook, you know, and then, he, and then he's, got, he's got a sling in his hand. I mean, that's how he's going out. And, and he's walking out to the middle of the battlefield where Goliath's doing his spiel. And so the Philistine, verse 41, Goliath came on and he drew near to David. So he sees someone coming out, but he doesn't know it's David. He doesn't think, he doesn't think it's a shepherd or anything. So he comes near. He says, oh, they're finally going to send out a challenger. And so he, he comes out um, and it says the man that bare the shield went before him. So his shield bearer is out in front of him walking with the shield. I mean, he's ready for a full-on contest here. And, but when the Philistine looked about, the word there means um, to consider, to, to gaze at. He gets a better look at David. When he starts kind of studying him, it says that he disdained him. The word there means to not just that you think something is worthless or beneath your consideration or deserving of your scorn, but it's some way that you show that. So, I mean, I don't know how he did that. I mean, we know he's going to insult David in a second, but you know, I don't know if he's looking at David, all of a sudden his face is like, this is a joke. And that's kind of what he says here. He's like in verse 43, uh, when he, well, verse 42, and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him for he's but a youth and ruddy and a fair countenance. In other words, he's a red-haired pretty boy, you know? He sees David, he's a, this, what's this red-haired pretty boy coming out fighting me, you know? Where's the guy in the armor? Where's the guy with a sword? And so he says unto David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Because that's the preferred method when you're trying to chase off a wild animal, you know? You don't go after them with a sword or something like that. Uh, I know they like to do that in battles that, the, you know, people, you know, stab animals. It's always, it's always stabbed animals. The animal's like this dumb animal just jumps and the guy's like, you know? That's not how you, I mean, that's not how animals fight. They're scrappy, you know? And a sword's not going to help you out in that because the animal will take a cut as long as he can get to your jugular. 
And so you tended to, to have more bludgeoning-type weapons against wild beasts and, and creatures like that. And the shepherd, even when the shepherd was out, he had his crook for the sheep, but then he had a, he had a rod he'd go out, go out with too, and it was to either throw or you know, throw at the wolf or to beat him off, you know? And that's the idea. You, you, you crack a rib or whatever, and then they're done, you know? So he says, am I a dog? And, and that's a, a phrase that was used back then uh, basically like the, the lowest of the low, um, you know, person of low status. So you, am, I, I, I know, am I a nobody here that you're going to come out and treat me like an animal? You know, come out with, against me with, like, with sticks? And then Goliath cursed David by his gods. The word there means to invoke divine harm. He, he said, Mike, you know what? For, for, for insulting me like this, I hope, I hope before we even fight my God, just strike you dead right here with lightning or something. You know, you've angered my gods by this type of insult. Can I encourage you something? I hear a lot of Christians acting like Goliath today. Don't be like Goliath. You've angered my God by wronging me. You know, I'm his kid. I, I deserve to be treated better. Jesus told us that the world would hate us and mistreat us. And Jesus set an example of how we're to respond when that happens. So let's do that instead of returning evil for evil or insult for insult. And if you're going to disobey the Lord's command to do that, then please, please, please don't use the Lord's righteous anger as your excuse. God does not get insulted because someone mistreated you. The Lord is just and he will deal with it in his own way. But the Lord's desire is to show mercy, to forgive them just as he forgave you. And so if putting you through a few insults so people can see Jesus is something that will bring that person to him, the Lord is more than happy to throw you in front of the insults. He's okay with that. And we have to learn to trust him with that. Now, I love David's answer. Well, the, verse 44, the Philistine said unto him after he insults him and curses him by his gods, he says, come to me and I will give the, your flesh unto the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. But David's like, I'm, I'm not ready to come. I, you spoke, I get to talk too. So then said David to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear. It's almost like David's like, how come no one thinks like I do? Like Saul is not, they're talking apples, oranges. You know, all the men out there, they're all talking apples, oranges. Now Goliath and him are talking apples, oranges. He's like, let me give you some perspective before I kill you, Goliath. He says, you're making the same mistake everybody else is making here. You come out against me, he says, with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. Bravo. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You're all calling your gods to strike me dead because I've insulted you? You've insulted the armies of the living God. You think he's going to ignore that? Just do nothing? And I've come out in his name. And this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. You know, he tells Goliath, You've come out with all your tools. He goes, I'm not going to fight you out here on my own, though, with those kind of tools. Buddy, you're up against the Almighty God, which means you've already lost. Now, is David being presumptuous here? Because we talk about this sometimes. Like, you hear some people, and you're like, dude, you need to come down off your cloud. You know, you need to chill out and, you know, relax for a second. 
is David being presumptuous? Because we have no record of God telling David to fight Goliath, none. How can he know this is the Lord? Well, I love what he goes on to say in the rest of verse 46 and 47. He says, and I will smite you, and I will take your head from you, and I will give the carcass, is not you. This isn't about me and you. This is not about me being better than you. I'm going to give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines, the entire army of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You kind of just want to get up and clap when you see that, you know? Like, get him, David. But David's hard here. He is so confident, and he shows why. He knows why this is the Lord. Because David's motivation isn't, isn't uh, Goliath's motivation. David's motivation isn't personal confidence and not even patriotism. His, his confidence, his uh, motivation is to be a witness that the God of Israel is real. That everyone would know that his God is real. And I love how he explains to Goliath, the Lord, he doesn't save with sword or spear because the battle is his. David's motivation isn't personal glory. It's the Lord's glory. And so David is not being overzealous, arrogant, or even just emotional here. He knows the Lord is with him based on Samuel's anointing. He knows God's spirit rests upon him. And combining that with God's promises to the nation and a desire for God to be glorified, David knows he's right where God wants him to be. And therefore, he cannot lose. You know, I think it's so important for us to ask God to check our heart to see if pride is there because pride is often hiding behind the excuse of courage. But when you've asked the Lord to search your heart and you've lined it up against the Word and you know that, you know, the Lord's, you know, that it doesn't violate the Lord's Word, then the, the Bible says we should step out in faith and go forward. And so, you know, the question you have to ask is this. Is my motive God's glory or is my motive personal success? You know, is my motive to be a witness or is my motive to shut this person up or crush my foes? If the motive is right and you've asked God to search your heart for other things and you line up with the Word, then why not step out in faith? Amen? Well, verse 48. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose, Goliath was done with the verbal sparring, came to pass when the Philistine arose, and he came and drew near to meet David, that David hasted. The word there means he acted immediately. As soon as the Philistine, Goliath, made his move, David did not hesitate. There was no hesitation. And so it says that he ran toward the army to meet the Philistines. So as they're on this, whatever battlefield it is, I would have to say that probably one of the highlights of my life it was teaching this passage in the Valley of Elah. <laughs> it's probably one of the coolest things ever. While I was teaching it, as I was teaching it, all this huge herd of sheep, came, a flock of sheep came walking behind me. And it was just like, I can't believe I'm here doing this right now. But when you're in this valley, you can picture it. You know, I mean, it's a big valley, but it's not like this miles and miles of valley, you know? You can picture, you know, one army here, another army over there, and these two guys shouting at each other from a distance. You can, you can picture it in your mind. And, you know, the thought, though, of David just running toward, you know, the entire Philistine army, you know? He's just out in front, running, running toward the army, toward Goliath at full speed. 
It's just, it inspires you. And it says that while he was running, he put his hand in the bag, because it never says he stops. And, and the nature of the Hebrew here implies that he's still running when he does this. He puts his hand into the bag, he takes from there a stone, and he slung it, he hurled it at the Philistine, so that it smote the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone stunk, sunk into his forehead, and he, Goliath, fell upon his face to the earth. It's almost slightly anticlimactic. <laughs> it's like, that's it, it's over. David, I am not, I am not um, skilled. I mean, I, you know, I can take one of these little things and pull or whatever, but that's not the type of slings that these guys use. They, these are the things you kind of whirl around. And, and so the concept of running, like, you know, you see in the movies people are running and shooting and stuff, but that generally is not very accurate, you know. I can't imagine that is, I mean, you look at studies and stuff, no, it's not accurate to be running with and slinging at the same time. So this is a, a very low, um, low percentage shot that David makes. And, and remember, we've already studied Goliath's armor. He doesn't have a whole lot of weak spots that a rock's going to do some damage, except the place where he can see, right here. And so David's aiming for a very small target with a very low percentage shot, what many would call an impossible shot. And yet, David hurls the stone. And it hits him right in the forehead so that it, the word there sunk means to strike deep so as to create a depression in the object it strikes. The stone, when it hit Goliath, it caved in his skull. And he just falls face first. I mean, he's just, he's there and, and he's just, he's done. I mean, it's over right then and there. He just falls down dead on his face to the ground. Now, the question, of course, is what just happened? I mean, everybody's watching. That's not how they expected this to pan out. No one knows if Goliath's dead or not. I mean, he fell to the ground. But is he dead? That's kind of an important part of the contest. You have to be dead to have a winner. From a distance, no one would know. So David needs to do something as proof. Verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And he smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. How's he going to prove this guy's dead? David says, I'll use his. So verse 51, therefore David ran. I mean, he just he doesn't break. He runs and he stood upon. He stands on top of Goliath, takes out his sword, drew it out of the sheath, and slew him and cut off his head with it. Made sure he's dead first. You know, I don't know what he did. Slit his throat, stabbed him, who knows. But then after that's done, he cuts off Goliath's head. And when the Philistines saw that now they know their champion's dead, they fled. Now remember, I told you that it, it was, this is not the first time that armies had these one-on-one -on -one contests to determine the winner of battles. No battle was ever determined that way. Everybody always fought afterwards. The problem is it was a big, huge morale blow to the losing side. And we see here that the Philistines flee. They do not honor the agreement. They run. They're like, oh, no. This guy is, this, they're just shepherd boy killed our best soldier. We're done for. And they run. 
Well, verse 52, this stirs up the courage of the rest of the Israeli soldiers. And so the men of Israel and of Judah, they arose and they shouted and they pursued the Philistines until you come to the valley and to the gates of Ekron, to the very gates of one of their chief cities. And the wounded of the Philistines, they fell down. So there's just Philistines dying left and right all the way to Gath, even unto Ekron. And so the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines and they spoiled their tents because when you run like that, you don't have time to grab your stuff. And David took the head of the Philistine and he brought it to Jerusalem, but his armor he put in his tent. The word tent can also mean home. So this is a very quick battle. This is not a long battle. Uh, Goliath and all the things that made him so ominous just become another log in history. On the way home, David drops his noggin off at Jerusalem. Uh, no explanation why he does it there. I have no clue. Uh, and then he takes the rest of Saul's stuff, his armor, his sword, uh, home as a trophy. Um, we know from other scripture that eventually he takes all of that stuff to the tabernacle and gives it to the priests, and it's there at a later date. But what a huge victory for Israel. What an amazing thing that the Lord used this unequipped guy to take out a guy who has been trained for this moment his whole life. And yet, even though this was a huge victory for Israel, it was not Saul's victory. Saul is absolutely baffled by this outcome. He's baffled at David's courage when he was so troubled and baffled that David won. And so before David does everything that verse 54 says, Saul asks about David's family. And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I cannot tell. So the king said, inquire Thou whose son the stripling is. And the word they're stripling means that David's under 20 years old. You never use that word for someone who's over 20. So David's at, he's a teenager of some sort at this point in time. Might be 19, but very likely he's 15 or 16. And so as all this is going down, Saul knows that David's father is Jesse, but he doesn't know anything about Jesse. So he asked Abner, he's saying, what's this kid's background? What's his lineage? Where did he learn to be like this? And Abner, he goes, don't have a clue. Jesse's name didn't conjure up any great deeds or any great lineage, which is sad because just a bit of knowledge of God's word, and they would both know that David's ancestors were Ruth and Boaz, right? Two godly people who also experienced the Lord's hand on their lives. Saul says, well, I need to know, so go find out. And so David gets arrested again. Look at verse 57. And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him. That's what that word means. He seized him. He grabbed him and he brought him before Saul with the head of that. I mean, he still got the head. He doesn't even get to put that down, you know? And Saul says to him, whose son are you, you young man? Can I tell me your story, bro? <laughs> I mean, where do you learn to do stuff like this? And I love David's answer. I'm just a son. I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm nobody special in that sense. If you want to know my training, my background, my lineage, what my family's about, I'm just the son of Jesse, the, the Bethlehemite. I'm just a guy who was trusted the Lord. And there it is, David and Goliath. David explains, I'm nothing special. I'm not head and shoulders above the rest of Israel like you are, Saul. I'm just a regular kid that knows my God is really huge. That's it. And you know, that's what a courageous heart is. It doesn't ignore the problems around it. It isn't absent of fear. It doesn't have an inflated view of itself. 
It just has an accurate view of the Lord. It evaluates, it evaluates everything else in light of that. So I ask you tonight as we close, is that your heart? You know, do you overemphasize your shortcomings, your weaknesses, or your inadequacies? Or you evaluate things in light of who God is and what he said? That's what God told Joshua to do. It's what he calls all of us to do. God told King Asa, I love it, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Asa, after he had trusted the Lord for the victory over the, the African army that had invaded Israel, later on, he doesn't trust the Lord with a smaller army. And the Lord comes to him through the prophet and he says, Asa, my eyes are roaming to and fro throughout the earth. And all I'm looking for is someone's heart who is completely yielded to me, fully yielded to me, that will just trust me completely. All I'm looking for is a heart that looks to me. Is that your heart tonight? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, I know if I'm asked that question, I know I would answer it at different ways at different times in my life. Because sometimes, Lord, I've not had that courageous heart. Sometimes I've, I've had that heart that looks at my own inadequacies, feels overwhelmed, you know, sees my own shortcomings, sees my own weaknesses. I fail to see your greatness. And so, Lord, maybe there are some tonight who are, who are battling that. Maybe they're looking at their own inadequacies, their own weaknesses, and they're thinking, Lord, I... I I can't do this. I can't be the husband or the wife or the dad or the mom or the, you know, the person, you know, the, the, you know, sharing my faith. I can't do these things like other people do it. I'm not like them. Oh, Lord, lead us to that rock that is higher than I, higher than us. And remind us of a, a teenager who said, there's nothing special about me, but there is something very special about my God. Lord, you are an awesome, awesome God. And you more than make up the difference for whatever we are inadequate for. So Lord, tonight, whether there's something going on in our lives or not right now that we need to courageously trust you for, we, we decide, Lord, we want to have courageous hearts like David. We want to have an accurate assessment of who you are and look at everything in our lives in light of that. And then, Lord, we commit tonight to be those who will obey you no matter what. So fill us with your spirit that we might do that, Lord. Fill our hearts with courage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.